the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, Amen. If I were to ask you what topic or issue you think mattered most to Jesus, I wonder what you might say. Like if we were having coffee and we were talking about Jesus in the Bible, and I were to ask you what topic or issue do you think comes up the most in Jesus' preaching and teaching, I wonder what you might think. I did a little digging into the Gospels this week because I was curious which topics or issues tended to dominate Jesus' preaching. Take money, for example. Jesus had a lot to say to people about their money, their material possessions, their wealth. So if we comb through the Gospels to see how often does money come up in Jesus' teaching, and if we're generous, and if we include, include a few related issues like tithing or almsgiving, you find money comes up about 31 times across all four Gospels. What about stealing? Ten times. What about the ends of the world? I mean, Jesus talks about the coming day of the Lord only about 13 times across all four Gospels. What about something scandalous, like adultery? Maybe Jesus talked about that a lot, 16 times. What about forgiveness? That seems important, 21 times. Okay, here's a good one, Sabbath. Well, if you look at Jesus' teachings about the Sabbath, you get about 25 times. Prayer? Come on, that's got to be it, right? 26 times. Demons or unclean spirits and what to do about them? 32 times. Love? Ah, finally. We're reaching the peak here, right? Come on, preacher. It's got to be love. If there's one thing we know about Jesus is he's always preaching about love. 58 times. Not too shabby. That's like five times as many mentions as stealing, and 58 seems like a lot, and it is a lot, but it is still not the topic or issue Jesus talked about the most. No, that issue, that issue that is most central to Jesus' teachings, the issue most regularly on his lips in his discussion with his disciples and in his preaching in public places, that issue is this, the kingdom of God, 87 times across all four Gospels. No other topic even comes close as much as this. Whatever else we want to imagine Jesus saying or instructing his followers about, the kingdom of God, the reign or rule of God, and what that reality is like is a numerical outlier, and we need to know that. But what exactly is the kingdom of God? Is it a place is it a distant future reality? Is the kingdom of God here now? Is it a physical space or is it a spiritual domain? Is it something that we help build and bring into being or is that work being done by God? What is the kingdom of God and what does it mean to be a church congregation belonging to a denomination who believes that one of our top six jobs as a church is to exhibit the kingdom of heaven to the world? How can we exhibit something we might not understand? How can we fail to understand the number one item and issue of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels? Today, church, we set out on a new preaching series here at First Pres, an 11-week series we're calling Thy Kingdom Come. And it's all about, you guessed it, the kingdom of God. 
Why that topic? Well, because that topic is at the forefront of Jesus' imagination, and it is the topic he returns to the most in the Gospels. And so for the next 11 weeks until Advent, we're going to be preaching through the Gospel texts assigned on Sundays by the Revised Common Lectionary. And in our review of those 11 passages, we started to see that at the center of nearly all of them is something about what it means to be part of the kingdom of God, or as Matthew's gospel calls it, the kingdom of heaven. Each week, we're going to see what Jesus says about life in God's kingdom, and we're going to see how Jesus' followers should be patterning their lives and habits and actions to be ready for God's kingdom to intersect with our own reality one day. The gospel passages are fascinating. Of the 11 Sundays coming up, we have eight parables, along with three mini-episodes from Jesus' travels. But all 11 advance our understanding of what exactly it means when we pray, Thy kingdom come. What does that look like? Today we kick off this series by heading over to the Gospel of Matthew where we jump into the middle of a longer conversation between Jesus and his disciples in Matthew chapter 18. You may want to grab your pew Bibles and find your way over to Matthew chapter 18 so you can follow along with what we're talking about today. Our reading comes at the end of Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35, but if we're going to understand why it's there, you've got to understand a bit about what's been going on earlier in this chapter. By the time today's passage rolls around, Jesus and his disciples are in an extended conversation about what does life look like, like practically, in the Jesus community. In the passage just before ours, Jesus has outlined for the disciples his conflict resolution policy. If you have your pew Bibles open, take a look back at verse 15 Jesus says, he says, if another member of the church sins against you, Jesus says, here is what you do. And in the verses that follow, we read this. First, Jesus says, you practice direct speech. You point out the fault to the offender by yourself. If that works, great. But as you know, those of you who have ever, I know it's rare, but who have ever been in conflict with another human being may point out sometimes it doesn't result in change. So Jesus is fine. If it doesn't work, then you uh, take one or two other Jesus followers with you, and again, you try to talk to them. And if that fails, then you take the rest of the church with you. And if the offender still won't listen to the rest of the church community, Jesus says, verse 17, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That is, if they're still unrepentant, still unwilling to accept their part in the injury, then you should begin viewing that person as somebody who has not yet started following Jesus in the first place and who needs your, a different kind of your care. Okay, that sounds like a fairly practical plan, but as we begin today's reading in verse 21, we find that Peter has been stewing a bit on these instructions. They've been kind of going through his head, and maybe he's even had a couple parking lot meetings with the other disciples to talk about this conflict resolution strategy and to outline their concerns. And so Peter, the spokesperson for the disciple, comes to Jesus and asks Jesus a quantitative 
question. Verse 21, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive them? Not if a fellow Christian is doing something wrong in general, but what do I do when somebody has done something wrong towards me? Peter says, the conflict resolution plan's great, Jesus, thank you so much, but when is enough enough? Like, how many times can a person hurt me by lying or slandering or defaming or gossiping and so forth? Is there a limit to our forgiveness? Peter wants to know. He even floats a number to Jesus, as many as seven times. And the way this sentence is is actually constructed in Greek, it leads us to believe that Peter is really convinced this is a high number. Like, he's like, okay, Jesus, I'm just going to throw out a high number here. What about seven times? Like, that's a lot of forgiveness. Is seven the maximum? Like, we'll never get there, but if we get there, it's seven, right? And to that, Jesus says, no, 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 no. Not seven times, Peter, but 77 times. Now, if Peter thought that seven times was a lot, I'm imagining his mind is blown and his jaw is opening at Jesus saying, it's 77. And you might be wondering about that. I mean, like, what's the deal with this number, 77? Did Jesus just make it up on the fly because it sounds high or, like, churchy, like sevens? Like, he's like, like Bach writing things in sevens. Jesus is like, oh, 77, that'll work. I mean, there are bigger numbers than 77 in Greek if Jesus was trying to suggest there's no limit to how much we should forgive someone. He could have said 1,000, for example, but he picks a specific number, not seven, but 77. Well, preacher, okay, fine. Is 77 a special number that has symbolic meaning? Not really, no. Okay, well, is there another place in the Bible where that number comes up that Jesus might be referencing here? Well, yes, actually, now that you mention it. In the whole Bible, there are actually only two places where the number 7 and the number 77 appear close to one another, and today's passage from Matthew 18 is one. The other is what we might call a total deep cut from the Old Testament, and one that might not be familiar to anybody but the biggest Bible geeks. I want to go down this road because I think understanding this connection is going to help us understand more about what Jesus means by forgiveness. So go back with me to the book of Genesis chapter 4. And if you want to practice finding Genesis 4 in your pew Bibles, you can do so. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, we meet the first two children of the first humans. Two boys named Cain and Abel. You know the story, perhaps. Cain becomes jealous of Abel and ends up murdering his brother in a field. As a consequence, Cain is exiled. He moves out east of Eden, and he and his family start a settlement called Enoch that he named after his son. In five generations, that small settlement becomes a city, and that city had a reputation for not being a place you'd want to end up living. The way of Cain, the way of vengeance, is codified in the laws of Enoch. Now, eventually, one of Cain's descendants, his great-great-grandson, a guy named Lamech, gets into a minor physical confrontation with a young man, a stranger, who punches Lamech. And Lamech responds 
by ruthlessly murdering the offender on the spot in a moment of rage. And then, in his pride, he goes to his two wives and he sings a song all about his alpha male dominant attitude. Look at verse 23 and 24 of Genesis chapter 4. Lamech said to his wives, Ada, Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And then look at verse 24. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech is seventy-sevenfold. Lamech elevates his own rage and vengeance and believes it to be a point of pride that he paid this guy back 77 times for punching him. Lamech is an example of the way the world works east of Eden. This is the rule book for survival outside of God's garden. Not seven times the vengeance, but 77 times. Not seven times the clap back, but 77 times. If Lamech had Spotify on his iPhone, he was probably jamming out to Taylor Swift who sings, I don't dress for women, I don't dress for men, lately I've been dressing for revenge. Don't get small, get even. Sorry to all the Swifties out there. <laughs> so so when, when Peter comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus, how often should we forgive our offenders? And he floats a high number of seven times. And when Jesus responds by saying, no, no, not seven, but 77, I think it's a callback to this story about Lamech. And by referencing it, Jesus is suggesting that in the Jesus community, in the church, in the kingdom of heaven, we should be marked not by our extravagant revenge against those who hurt us, but rather by our extravagant forgiveness. And to illustrate this sort of extravagance, Jesus, Jesus tells a pretty fascinating parable about a king who had a practice of loaning out money to his servants when they needed it. And eventually the time comes for the debts to be paid. And so the king calls this one servant in who owed him 10,000 talents, my Bible says. Now if you were around in Jesus' day, you would have laughed out loud when you heard Jesus say 10,000 talents. It's an absurd amount. A single talent is worth something like 20 years of income for an average blue-collar worker. And so 10,000 talents is roughly 200,000 work years of income. And in our day, if you assumed an annual income of about $50,000, you'd be looking at something like $10 billion. It's astronomical. It's impossible to repay. No amount of labor or financial scheming is ever going to get this guy enough to repay this debt. Now, why the king let the debt accrue, and why all of a sudden he makes the guy repay, beyond the text. But this guy can't pay, because obviously he can't. And so the king orders that he and his family are going to be sold into slavery until the debt was over, which, as I've just said, will never happen. So the guy pleads with the king. Notice that he does not apologize. Notice that he does not own his error. There is no repentance. It's just a plea for mercy. He asks him to be patient with him and not throw him into jail. He promises to repay everything if he just had just a little bit more time, which a little bit of time is 200,000 years. So he doesn't have the time, but he asks for it anyway. But the king is taken aback at the guy's plea. And the text says the king has pity on him. 
He has compassion for this person who has gotten himself in way over his head. And he not only relents from selling him into slavery, he cancels the man's entire debt, zeroing out the $10 billion debt and setting this man free. But as soon as the man leaves the room, he notices a colleague who owes him a couple thousand dollars. And the forgiven guy bum-rushes this man, starts to choke him, and demands that he pay back his debt immediately. And the other guy uses the exact same words. Have patience with me. I'll repay everything. But instead of showing mercy, instead of acting out of pity or compassion, the first servant takes a page straight out of Lamech's playbook and puts the man in prison where, interestingly, the guy cannot work and therefore cannot repay anything. Word gets back to the king, and the king confronts the first servant. He demands to know why the first servant couldn't show the same kind of mercy he himself had received. And as a consequence, the king reinstates the entire $10 billion debt, hands the man over to the jailers for hard labor until the king was satisfied the debt had been paid. And Jesus ends the parable and this chapter about life in the Jesus community with some of the hardest words in the entire Bible. He says, this is what God will do to us if we do not forgive our brothers or our sisters from our heart. Yikes. Church. In saying this, Jesus moves forgiveness to a place of foundational importance in the kingdom of God. As Jesus' followers, we are obligated to forgive our offenders. It's mandatory behavior. We have no other recourse. Vengeance, revenge, clapping back, getting even, all of that is off limits for those who follow Jesus as Lord. It gets harder because it's not just forgiveness once or twice or even seven times, but radical, extreme, relentless, unending forgiveness. We can't really argue with this assessment. It's right there in today's text. We must forgive a fellow Christian who has caused us offense or injury. But what is less clear is what forgiveness actually means. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about forgiveness and what it means and what it doesn't mean. If it's mandatory behavior for us, we had better know what it is, and we'd better know what it isn't. And let's start with what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not forgetting. It is not ignoring injury. It is not just letting bygones be bygones. Forgiveness is not making injuries the water under the bridge, and it is not sweeping hurts up and burying them or downplaying their seriousness. Forgiveness does not mean being a doormat for somebody else's toxic behavior. How do I know this? Because earlier in Matthew 18, Jesus illustrates how conflict and injury leads not to ignoring the hurt, but to directly addressing it, to naming the offense to the offender's face. And if after a one-on-one -on -one conversation they do not embrace their role in the conflict, Jesus tells his disciples they never need to be alone with that person again. He says, bring others with you. Bring the church if you need. 
But you are not obligated to be alone with someone who will not admit to their own toxicity. Church, look, if you are here and you are being victimized or injured by a toxic person or situation, forgiveness does not require you to stay put and accept the injury. You need space. You need to be safe. Forgiveness is not acceptance or ignorance. Forgiveness is not, also importantly, it is not reconciliation either. When we think of forgiveness, sometimes we can make it into a two-player game. Someone hurts us, they apologize to us, and we forgive them. That's forgiveness. In fact, we can make forgiveness into something that can only be earned by somebody else's adequate repentance. But in the story today, it is clear that the forgiveness of the first person's $10 billion debt is not built upon their repentance or remorse. The first servant doesn't say, I'm so sorry for doing this to you. I was irresponsible, but only have patience with me. The king forgives the debt not because the servant was satisfactorily sorry, but just because the king had compassion for him. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. Reconciliation with an offender may take place later, after many, many, many conversations and trust-renewing moments. But forgiveness is not a two-player game. It is a single-player game. You can forgive somebody without also reconciling with them. Okay, if that's what forgiveness is not, what is it then? There's a million ways we could say this, but here are a few. Forgiveness is giving up your right to seek vengeance against someone who's injured you. Forgiveness is canceling the debt of our neighbor who has hurt us by choosing not to treat them in the way they have treated us. Or this, forgiveness is compassionately re-remembering the person who has hurt us, looking at them in mercy, and not as somebody worthy of Lamech's vengeance. If you're a follower of Jesus here today, and someone has hurt you, someone has injured you, someone has lied about you, someone has slandered you, someone has stolen from you, someone has abused you, you can and you must forgive them, but that doesn't mean you stay near them, and it does not mean you pretend like they didn't do those things. But it does mean that insofar as it is possible in our hearts, we set aside our desire to seek revenge, our desire to pay them back 77 times for what they've done to us, and instead we commit them to the care of God and we learn again the hard work of how to wish that person well, even if it means we are no longer associating with them. One day we can hope and pray that reconciliation may be possible. Perhaps after much counseling and planning, that person will come to realize the depths of how they have hurt us and will make amends and will begin trust-renewing moments to rebuild a potential relationship. But that is not what Jesus says is mandatory behavior for the Christian. Instead, he says, from your heart, do what it takes for you to cancel the debt your offender owes you. Do what it takes for you not to react like Lamech to your injury. Do what it takes for you to forgive a fellow follower of Jesus who has hurt you. Is this easy? Absolutely not. Will God's Spirit help us? Absolutely. May we be a church community here at First Pres 
who exalts not in how we got revenge against our offenders, but rather may we be a people who humbly and boldly offers radical forgiveness, not once or twice, nor even seven times, but 77 times and unto forever. And in our forgiving, may we become a place that is more an exhibition of the kingdom of heaven to this world, a kingdom ruled by a God who in Jesus decided in his compassion to cancel our immeasurable debt of sin long before we knew anything of it and long before we could ever apologize for it. We are now set free And we are free to share that same mercy to those who hurt us. May it be so here. And may God's kingdom of forgiveness come quickly. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, Amen.